0: All right, hey everyone! We've been talking for two minutes, thinking we were live, but now we are. So, welcome to In the Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. Welcome to our Counterpoint series. This is week two, where today we are going to be debating the topic: Who or what is the serpent in the Garden of? Eden. Uh, my name is Dr. Tim Howe, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. We're going to dive in in just a moment, but before we do, Dr. Brian, can you tell our viewers how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing
1: well. Uh, thanks for bearing with us through some technical glitches. <laughs> I'm not actually sure if we were live or not. My, uh, my sample stream wasn't working yet, but hey, we never promised perfection, only improvement. So uh, I'm excited, Tim. <laughs> this is going to be a good week. The topic of who or what is the serpent in the garden is one that I have a lot of questions about. I have some answers. Maybe I have some observations. And so I'm excited to dig into it with you. Uh, last week, our first live stream was a great time and I'm looking forward to more of the same tonight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you just got to laugh at yourself a little bit and, uh, and keep, keep walking forward. Uh, so as we uh, as we begin tonight, we're coming back again to Genesis, and uh, and of course we love this, Brian, because uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, are known as the prologue of Genesis, and there's so much in terms of trying to, to get off on the right foot and understand what's going on uh, in these first 11 chapters. And last week we talked about the Garden of Eden, or rather we said the garden that is in Eden, and uh, whether or not it was a temple. Today, we're going to talk about... A, a topic that is very interesting, it's very mysterious, and it's the identity of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And so, viewers, uh, how we're going to do this for every Counterpoint episode is basically one of us is going to present for five to ten minutes our view on the topic, then we're going to kick it over to the other one to also present a counterpoint for five to ten minutes, and then we're going to ask each other questions. We're going to debate it and and try to come to a better understanding. And of course, the goal is to not produce heat, but rather to produce light and uh, encourage each other as we hopefully model the kind of dialogue and and disagreement that we would hope to have uh, as brothers in Christ. So tonight, I am up first, and I am going to be taking the position that the serpent in the Garden of Eden uh, is just that. It's a serpent. And uh, Brian's going to take an alternative position uh, a little bit later, but I'll go ahead and present mine. Uh, as, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, that's where we're at, and if you have the opportunity to open your Bible, we'd encourage you to do that. Genesis 3 is a transition passage, and it, it opens uh, with the serpent coming on the scene. And just to to lay a bit of groundwork, at the beginning of chapter 3, it's really emphatic. The serpent is mentioned very first. Uh, In in Hebrew, uh, the subject, the serpent, is actually fronted, which is very unusual. In other words, there is an emphasis. It's almost like a spotlight hits the serpent as he comes on the scene in Genesis 3. Uh, but as we think about that, the question then becomes, well, who is this serpent? Uh, we don't really have a lot of background information. And by the way, uh, he has described he's described not just as a serpent, but as the serpent, which could be significant as we consider it. Uh, but my position is essentially that the text really uh, intentionally does not draw extra attention to the serpent as a powerful figure in its own right. And here's why I say that. I'm going to read Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made, and that's it. That's the information, that's the description, and the emphasis here uh, is really on the fact that God created the serpent. Uh, So yes, the serpent is important as a new character, but the emphasis is on the created nature of the serpent. The serpent is part of God's good world. He's under God's authority. And yet, of course, as the story continues, this serpent uh, has some strange features, Uh, first of which is he's able to talk, right? Right. He goes uh, immediately to Eve, he begins to question God's words and plant that seed of doubt in her mind, and of course eventually leads her to eat from the fruit uh, and then succumb to the temptation. Eve gives the fruit to Adam, who's with her, and then eventually Adam and Eve uh, receive curses, not personally, but in terms of their work, but the serpent himself is cursed. Now, here's my position. I believe that the serpent is a tool of Satan— uh, some some creature that is used by him, uh, but I do think that the physical idea of a serpent is present here. And I want to say the basic uh, the basic counterpoint or the basic problem with that is if this is truly a serpent, as in a creature, an animal, uh, then how do we account for these strange features of the serpent? For instance, the serpent speaking. And I want to speak to that for a moment. First, I want to say, when when we think of Scripture, uh, we do have other animals that are given the ability to speak in Scripture. And we see this, for instance, with Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22.30. Uh, But the key is that animal is only allowed to speak through supernatural intervention. So my position is, is that Satan used the guise of an actual physical animal. In other words, he entered, possessed, controlled the serpent, uh, gave the serpent the ability to speak, uh, and through the serpent was speaking lies that ended up tempting Eve. Now, here's what's interesting, and, and I'm a little bit on the fence about this, so Brian, you might you know put me to the grinder later, but there are at least some Jewish traditions that believed animals had the ability to speak before the fall. And particularly, if you're interested, Jubilees chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, this is not Scripture, this is in what's known as the pseudepigrapha, but at least it it gives some kind of precedent in Jewish thought that animals have the ability to speak. Uh, Now, that might seem strange to us, and here's why I'm on the fence about it. I do think that the relationship between human beings and animals was fundamentally different before the fall. And the reason for that is because in Genesis chapter 9, we explicitly are told that it was at that point that the fear and dread of humans entered into animals. So there's at least part of me, and, and some people may say this is nuts, but that's okay. We can be a little bit nuts. There's at least part of me that thinks, is it possible that the kind of relationships that, uh, animals had with humans before the fall actually included some kind of real communication that wouldn't it have, would not have rendered it crazy for an animal to come and communicate with Eve in the garden. Uh, I'd be glad to talk about that more later. As I said, I'm on the fence about that, but I think it's at least possible. Um, Next, I want us to think about the description of the serpent. The serpent is described as the most cunning among all the creatures of the field. So, when the text describes the serpent, it seems to use a a very earthy kind of description. It describes the serpent as among all the creatures of the field. And as I read in in verse 1, among all the creatures that the Lord God had made. So, the, the focus is on the serpent, yes. But the focus is on the fact that the serpent is created and therefore under God's authority, and then also to the description of the serpent is as one who is among all of the creatures of the field. And that's where I think, even from a taxonomic standpoint, I think that's significant, that the serpent is a creature, an animal that is used by Satan or used by the fallen angel that sometimes we describe as Satan, basically to uh, sow lies into the heart of Eve Uh, and then ultimately lead her astray. So here's my basic conclusion, that the serpent is more than a serpent, He's a certain a serpent used by the enemy of God, but he is certainly not less than a serpent. and as as Satan used the serpent, we see some themes later in Scripture uh, that tend to support that. And so for instance, uh, another uh, point that I'd like to just throw in there before I kick it to Brian is as we think about the human relationship uh, with serpents, I think of a text uh, like in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. Speaking about the end of times and and sort of the renewal of creation, here's what Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 9 says. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And then listen to this, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. So I think, as we continue to pull the thread of the serpent throughout the scriptures, that there was an enmity that was created, not only between humanity and the ultimate enemy, who we call Satan, But also, I think because the enemy used this particular form of a serpent, that image was then uh, captured in the minds of humans so that later on, the ultimate picture of harmony is that among actual serpents, cobras, other poisonous snakes, there will be harmony in the kingdom of God so that all of the enmity between humanity and creation, as in animals, will be overcome. But of course, the enemy himself, as it describes in Revelation chapter 20, The great dragon, the ancient serpent, will be thrown into the lake of fire and our true enemy will once and for all be defeated. So my position, more than a serpent, but not less than a serpent. Brian, I will kick it over to you. All right, Tim, thank you very much for that.
1: Uh, Really well done. All right, so my basic position, listeners, is going to be that I think the serpent is not something. I think the serpent is something. And I'm not sure if the serpent is a third thing. That's the basic form (laughs) of my argument. So let's start with what I'm pretty sure the serpent is not. And this is where Tim and I are going to have our fundamental disagreement. I don't think the serpent is an animal or rather not merely an animal. And I think the text bears that out. So a couple points. So first, uh, the ancient world was much more attuned to the world around them. I don't know about you, Tim, but I don't think you grew up on a farm. I know I definitely did not grow up on a farm. Uh, We have animals, of course, but when we think of the ancient Israelites, right, they are a people who farm, who have husbandry. Uh, They're around animals all the time. They don't share the scientific accumulation of knowledge that we have in the modern world, but they know they're animals, and animals don't talk. Uh, This, for me, was a Sunday school eye (laughs) moment when I was talking about Genesis 3 to a group of people who are... Just they were just students at GCU. And I had a student ask me, why doesn't the woman freak out when the snake talks? And I was like, that's actually a good question. Within the Bible, you only have two stories where an animal or maybe an animal talks. And it's this story. And then the story Tim brought up, which is Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, though, it says that the Lord explicitly opens the animal's mouth. It cannot normally talk. Talking Mm -hmm. otherwise is the realm of spiritual beings and humans, as this is clearly not a human. I don't think I know of anyone that argues for that reading of this passage. (laughs) Uh, The only other option left, then, is that this is a spiritual being of some sort because it is talking. Again, so that's point one. Point two is that Eve does not react, and I think we should pay attention to that. When the woman hears the serpent talking to him, she doesn't freak out and go, oh, my goodness, Adam. There's a talking snake in the garden. Get pest control. I don't know. This does not look good. (laughs) Nor does she even seem troubled by its presence, right? She does not open her conversation. The serpent talks to her and she doesn't open that conversation by saying, why are you here? Narratively, I think this implies something. This creature is something she has seen before and something that she does not think is out of place here. So that's point one, animals don't talk. Point two, Eve seems to be comfortable with this thing being present. Third, and Tim, you did bring this up. It is referred to as the serpent. Not a serpent, not any old Mm -hmm. serpent, but the serpent. I think that marks that out somehow as this is something distinct. This is not just the hoi polloi of serpents. There is something special (laughs) called out here. Now, we could go into um, some of the arguments for why you might see it as an animal, maybe in our discussion. But let me just summarize this. If this is not an animal, and I think animals don't talk, I think the scriptures are clear. Jubilees, of course, does make that argument, but I don't think that is as convincing as we might hope it would be. Um, If it's not an animal and this is a monotheistic text, meaning we don't have multiple gods, and it is a monotheistic text, then we're left with this has to be some sort of spiritual being. I don't use the term angel. Tim and I have had this conversation, but I don't usually like the term angel unless we're talking specifically about an angel, because angel is a precise term. That means a specific type of spiritual being. I want to be a little bit more uh, open with my definition here. So the question is, if this is a spiritual being, why is it called a serpent? Is there, here's the key question I want us to ask. Does the Bible have a spiritual being who is described as a serpent? And the answer is yes, we call them seraphim. So what is it not? It's not an animal. What do I think it is? I think the serpent is likely a seraphim or a seraph, singular, seraphim, plural. These are spiritual beings who are described as snakes. Now, you might go, wait, I've heard that term before. It's in Isaiah. But how do you get snakes? Well, here's how. Seraphim are spiritual beings whose function apparently is to go before the throne of God and proclaim holy, holy, holy. That's what they're doing in Isaiah 6-2 and Isaiah 6-6. Now, those are the only two occurrences of the word seraphim in your Bible and mine. But the term itself should tell you something. It's been transliterated. That is, seraphim is just the Hebrew characters rendered into English. The term itself actually occurs five other times. In each of those instances, it's translated with the term serpent. Those other five instances, by the way, they're in Isaiah 14, 29, and 36. In both cases, you have a off seraphim, a flying seraph, or a flying seraphim. Interestingly, Tim, in Isaiah 14, 6, it's poetry, mm-hmm. and you have parallel lines. The other parallel line is a nahash, a serpent. Uh-huh. The other three occurrences of seraph uh, occur in Numbers 21, 6, Numbers 21, 8, and Deuteronomy 8, 15. Each of these is referring to the bronze serpent story. Here, the seraph Nahash are sent out to bite and poison the people of Israel. We usually render it as the fiery serpents. Seraphim yeah. means something akin to the burning ones. It's a snake because it's a venomous snake. the If we're going to figure out why did they use the term burning one to refer to a serpent, it's because it's venomous snakes. It's venom burns in your veins. So. They are also described as flying in Isaiah chapter six. They have their six pairs of wings. So you have these spiritual beings who are described as serpents, flying serpents, interestingly. And in fact, the image of a flying serpent sounds very odd to our mind, doesn't it, Tim, in the modern world? However, (laughs) it's an exceedingly common image of the ancient world. In our discussion times, I actually have some pictures. I'm not going to show them now, uh, but that might be interesting to get into if we want in our debate time. When we get to the end of Genesis 3, the serpent is cast down, confine, uh, consigned, rather, to crawl on its belly. Now, I grew up in churches where we said, oh, the snakes had legs and lost them. I don't think so. And I don't think, Tim, necessarily you think so as well. I think it's a loss of wings, a being quite literally cast down from the heavens, being able to fly to the ground. If this is a spiritual being that there might be more weight or might be more significance behind the image or idea of being cast to the earth. Mm. I think the serpent being a seraph makes sense culturally. It's an image present both within Israel and within broader ancient Near Eastern culture. As is being connected to the presence of God, it now makes sense if this is a seraph, why Eve would not be surprised it's there. We know God is present in the garden, walks in the garden, If the seraphim are those beings that go with his presence and are before his throne, we might suspect that they've been to the garden before and would not necessarily trouble her. So, I don't think it's an animal. I do think it's a seraphim. I'm not sure Satan's role in all of this. (laughs) So this is a point where Tim and I actually might agree, even if we disagree on what the serpent is. (laughs) Listeners, if you have Genesis 3 and have read it through recently or read it through after the podcast, you will notice this serpent is almost de-emphasized by the text. It Hmm. just shows up. It's introduced as being crafty. It has a discussion with the woman. When God appears, God is going to question the man and then the woman. He's not going to question the serpent. Rather, the serpent is just consigned to face consequences of his actions and then is summarily dismissed. I don't disagree with anything Tim said there. I fundamentally think we do the Bible a disservice when we often think of it as being a a dichotomy of good versus evil. There is no dualistic nature to the Bible. The Bible is about God, full stop. Satan is the enemy of God. He is in no sense the equal, and in many ways he is trivial in the overall plan of God and will be swept away in a similarly trivial manner. Now, what is his potential connection here? If I wanted to argue that this is Satan or somehow connected to Satan, do you know where I would have to go? I can't actually go to the book of Genesis. It never brings up the serpent again. I can't go to the Pentateuch. I can't even go to the Old Testament. In fact, I have to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, wherein the apostle John is talking about the dragon. He's talking about Satan, and he calls him the serpent of old in verse 9. Now, that might reference this passage, the great serpent of old. It is the same word in both texts in the Septuagint and in Revelation, office. However, interestingly enough, the Septuagint also uses office for seraph. So maybe that doesn't help us much there, or maybe it strengthens my argument. We'll talk about that. However, simply because this is a possible referent, it's not the only reference. There are at least two other possibilities that we could have here. The or rather in Revelation 12, 9, it could be referring to Rahab, the sea monster, not the woman. Uh, It's referred to as a dragon, which that's an image that John has brought up in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Rahab is called a dragon in Isaiah 51, and is called a serpent in Job 26, 13. So that could equally be it. Or it could be a stereotype, the seed or the dragon or the serpent of chaos. Whatever the serpent is, it might be Satan. It might be Satan in a guise. Um, At the very least, I'm going to say it is a pawn or a vassal of Satan, someone acting under his control. I am unsure as to the actual presence of Satan here. There's maybe an argument to be made. If this is a seraph, is that what Satan was pre-fall? The Bible makes no such argument, so it would be very speculative for me to make that. But that is my argument. I do not think it is an animal. I I think the text is quite clear, both culturally and within the uh, phrasing of the story itself. I think all the pieces are there to connect it to the seraphim, although that is not important for the story itself. It might be important for us understanding the broader picture and, and story of the Bible. And I think it's connected to Satan. I am doubtful if it actually is Satan in the garden. So that is my view. So, Tim, uh, yeah, we'll throw it on out there to make it open. Listeners, if you are following along with us live, now's a chance to start hopping in the chat. What questions do you have? What things do you want us to elaborate on? Tim, I took notes while you were talking. Um, So, yeah, let's go ahead and get on into it.
0: Okay, well... Brian, thank you. And uh, viewers, I th- I hope you can understand uh, one of the reasons why I love doing this with Brian. He obviously has uh, not just a keen mind, but thinks very uh, critically and, and sifts through every part of these arguments uh, with a fine-tooth comb. And so I loved hearing that. Here's, here's uh, uh, one thing that I'll, I'll uh, throw to you, Brian, uh, because I don't think it's totally true that the only identification is in Revelation 20. 12-9. Uh, it, it okay, yeah. And as we think about that, okay, it describes him as the ancient serpent of old, but Paul actually describes uh, the idea that the God of peace, this is Romans 16, the end of Romans, mm-hmm. in Romans 16, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Um, and so when I when I read that particular text, uh, obviously, that's an allusion to the crushing of the serpent under the heel of the seed of the woman in uh, Genesis 3.15. And Paul describes the church as the one who stomps on the head of the serpent. Uh, but to me, that seems to be a, a close association with Satan. Um, I, I can get down with your point that, hey, whether it's a vassal of Satan, an instrument of Satan, or, or whatever— um, but here's my question for you for clarification. So you do do you believe that Satan is behind it, ultimately? Um, and then what do we make of those New Testament passages uh, where there might be a stronger identification with Satan and the work of the serpent?
1: Okay, so two questions there, right? So point of clarification, do I think—how uh, would you phrase it? Do I think that yeah, ser- uh, so- Satan is behind
0: Genesis 3? so and and i know that i know that is. you don't like the idea of of the word satan because and we're going to talk about this in a later episode <laughs> yeah. uh in, in a similar way Ha Satan, right is is kind of it's it's more of a title or a function the personified than a enemy
1: of god who however we call that figure right the yeah.
0: personified enemy of god um whoever we call that figure whether we say lucifer or the enemy or or whatever um how would how would you see maybe some of the other New Testament identifications in Romans sixteen? Or I also think Brian, I'll throw this one out at you too, because uh, mm-hmm. Jesus Jesus said that Satan or the Satan was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. Yeah. Uh, so that seems to to me to associate Genesis three and the lying of the serpent, the murdering of the serpent, the introduction of death uh, into the narrative. Uh, To me, those are allusions that are pretty strong. Maybe just briefly, because we may do this in another episode, how do you read those kind of allusions?
1: Okay, so I'll start with the clarification point, then let me get to the New Testament. In some way, shape, or form, I think Satan is connected to this. I think the Bible, uh, the passage you brought from Jesus, Satan was a liar and murderer from the beginning. Now, -hmm. interestingly, you'd have to do that Jesus is being paraphrastic, because Adam and Eve don't die. In a physical sense, which is what murderer mm. does. Murderer ever mean spiritual murderer? I don't think it ever does. And so that mm. that's a whole other thing of like, well, what story is he referencing there? If it's not Genesis three, um, yeah. But in some way, shape, or form, I think Satan is behind this, and I think theologically we have to. Otherwise, do you have two like whatever this creature is? This is is this a second fall somehow independent of Satan's fall? Did sin Mm -hmm. somehow get into a creation, the heavenly realm, and the physical realm twice in two different ways? I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't—just as I'm saying here, I mean, I haven't really thought about that. I don't necessarily see a problem, but I also don't see a need to duplicate that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't see any argument, any any reason why that would be a preferable reading. Um, I, I think Revelation 12 fairly strongly is referencing Genesis 3. I just put out those other things because I go, I can't say it's hundred percent certain because you mm-hmm. do have other serpent figures. We have the Leviathan, which I didn't even bring up. The um, yeah. yeah. serpents are a common image of an antagonistic chaotic force in the ancient mm-hmm. world. Um, Paul in Romans, uh, I, I might wonder how specifically does he mean this is the literal fulfillment of that passage in Genesis three? Because don't we mm-hmm. usually take that as a reference to Christ? So is Paul saying this is the same story, or is he saying in an analogous sense, just as Christ crushed this, so Satan, or so the church crushes Satan going forward? Um, Yeah, yeah. Sorry if I didn't follow your, if I didn't answer your direct question, but that's how I would uh, get at it.
0: I think fundamentally, I'm just trying to get a sense of your reading of how the New Testament would interpret Genesis 3. And I think what you're saying is the New Testament's interpretation is consistent with the idea of it being a seraph possibly uh, possibly, the enemy in the form of a seraph, possibly him using a vessel in some way. But, but essentially you're saying the New Testament is consistent with your position.
1: Yes, this is either Satan or someone sent by Satan. And so I guess that's where I yeah. want to maybe open yeah. up. You were talking about maybe it's something possessed by Satan. I'm okay if it's something sent by Satan. Okay. Because um, that's still, he, he's to blame. He's still the agent behind it, the causative yeah. agent. So I'd be okay with that.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Brian, do you have? uh, I've got some other things I want to talk to you about, but go ahead and poke some holes in what I said. Go for it. All right.
1: So my first question uh, for you: If this is an animal, uh, whether or not it's been possessed, whatever, have we introduced the idea that animals can sin? And are we okay with that?
0: Yeah, I don't. I I think again that he is using the physical. Uh, the physical muscles, organs, abilities of the animal, but I don't think that the animal itself is culpable. And actually, I think the passage that I quoted in Isaiah kind of speaks to that, because in some weird way, uh, it it actually speaks to the. Uh, in reunification of humans in the animal world, which I think is, uh, and, and Brian, I, I totally agree, by the way, with what you said about animals just being much more featured uh, and much more understood in ancient Israel. Uh, but mm-hmm. you look at that passage in Passage in Isaiah, and what is overcome there is not the uh, sinful brokenness, right? There's no there's no brokenness between humans and animals in terms of sin, but there is a brokenness in terms of there being chaos, fear, dread, and I think that's typified in in the book of Isaiah with serpents uh, being the ultimate manifestation of sort of animal. Uh, antipathy toward humans and then infants as well. You know, infants will put their hands into uh, snake holes essentially. So, do I think animals can sin? No. Do I think that animals can be used by supernatural beings who then the supernatural being can sin? Yes. So, I, I think the culpability is not the serpent itself. I think it's Satan using the serpent.
1: Then why is the serpent the one that's punished?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question uh, and and in terms of that answer i would just point out that when it does describe the serpent being punished it says because you've done this you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal mm-hmm. um now i think you're about to say well that proves my point if it's more than any wild animal uh then is it is how could it be an animal but this mm-hmm. is where this is where i do think uh there's there is a mystery if if there was and and this gets into a deeper, deeper rabbit hole, uh, to pardon the pun I'm going to make in a second, like it, it gets into a, a huge topic of how humans related to animals and whether or not pre-fall that animals had the same kind of sentient and, and spiritual awareness that they do now, which is to say there isn't really any. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we would at all say that um, that animals now can sin you know, if, if, a, if a bear mauls a human, we don't say that that's murder. We say that it killed the person. Um, right. And I think there's a reason for that. And yet, I do think there's a sense, even with the one story we have where God opens the mouth of the donkey, okay, well, even God opening the mouth of the donkey doesn't explain the—and this is talking about a weird debate, uh, you know? Uh, I'm feeling like a donkey a little bit right now. But th- 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 what does the donkey say he essentially says to the master, uh, says to Balaam in a paraphrase, "I've been trying to protect you this whole time. Why are you beating me?" In other words, the moral instincts of the donkey seem to be, in some sense, real. I've been I've been right in this situation, and you've been wrong. Uh, and of course, that has its own interplays in in the Book of Numbers, and you know, Balaam trying to be mm-hmm. a prophet who understands God. But do I think? Do I think? that there are moral instincts in some way, in their own animal kind of way, I actually think that that is possible. And that might put me on the loony bin section, uh, but I'm not willing to necessarily seed that at least completely.
1: Well, I've already talked about flying snakes. I'm already in the loony bin, so come join me. Uh, It's interesting with numbers 22, I I mean, I would argue Mm -hmm. part of that, well, okay, I guess here's the thing. When it says that God opens the mouth of the donkey, are we assuming that's the donkey talking or the Lord talking through the donkey? Because that's I think a- one of the key parts of that story is that mm-hmm. quite literally, pardon the language, but a dumb ass can see that God is present where the prophet of God somehow is blind. Um, yeah, absolutely. right. And that's part of, I mean, that's why mountain shake. That's why you have these theophonic signs. Creation is more aware of its creator than the people made in the image of the creator sometimes. And that's part of the tragedy of the old Testament as it unfolds. Um, So I, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. And by the way, to give you some uh, support for your side, you're not alone. C.S. Lewis thought animals could talk. That's why they can talk in Narnia and then lose that ability as sin uh, or the equivalent of sin takes over.
0: I'll tell you this, Brian, uh, C.S. Lewis influences me in a lot of ways, and as a kid, reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and and especially The Magician's Nephew, um, I I was really influenced by that, and, and on the one hand, it's a children's story, and, and you referenced Sunday School Eyes earlier. There's a part of me that just thinks, can you not sort of graduate from that childish way of thinking? But then there is a part of me that, again, wants to uphold there was a fundamental difference. And we do see that part of that fundamental difference in the pre-fall and post-fall world was the way that humans related to animals. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I I think that's at least part of it. Um, Whether or not God was talking through Balaam's donkey, I think that would actually— uh, in one sense subvert the point that it was, you know, uh, here's this prophet who should be able to, you know, understand when this donkey, you know, if it's, if it's really the Lord talking through the donkey, then does it have the same kind of punch? Um, but yeah, I, I hear, I hear you. And, uh, and, and again, as I weigh it in my own mind, it's like, am I willing to bite that bullet? And then as I put that bullet in my mouth, I'm like, it tastes pretty good. I don't know. Maybe I am willing to bite that bullet. Well um, this is
1: this is why I've been excited to talk about this, right? Because I think we're both like <laughs> all right, I, I see the points, but there there are some more difficult edges I, I think to yeah. both these positions. Sorry, I'll yeah. let you go. Go ahead and toss one back at me.
0: Okay. So uh, here's here's my question. Um and by the way, uh for our viewers, Brian is not alone uh as I was doing some research into this. Um Michael Heiser, for instance, he's someone who's well-known in the space of, of angels and demons, and he spends a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 11. He actually argues that this is a, a cherub, um, but I think mm. there's also the possibility in his mind that a seraph is actually a subcategory of cherub. So then you would have cherubim, and then underneath cherubim you would have seraphim, or at least a subtype of cherub. Um, and so let, let me let me... Pose something to you, maybe in a way that you've convinced me, okay. Brian. Do you think it's possible that it's depicted in animal-like terms, but this could be a literary technique to intentionally underplay the character of the serpent as a way to uh, as a way to shame him, as a way to um, not emphasize uh, or not highlight. Uh, or not give credence to his plans. So let me give another literary example to our listeners to to explain what I mean, and then and then I, I'm interested to just hear your thoughts, Brian. In the book of Ruth, uh, you may remember in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, uh, Boaz is going to redeem Ruth. And as he does this, he speaks to a man who is a closer relative than he is, and the text does not actually give the man's name. Uh, it mm. uses the the term Almoni. Uh, which is basically to say this man who shall not be named you know mm-hmm. it 's a in other words it 's a literary device intentionally used to downplay the character as if to say it 's not important there's a part of me, Brian, and I want to know what you think about this that thinks the reader the original reader would have understood there's more going on here than a serpent, and yet, from a literary point of view, is it possible that the serpent is used as sort of a a shameful uh, a, a shameful moniker a shameful disguise uh why so that satan really wouldn't spend much time in the limelight like you said here's the serpent he does this he's created by god that's really all you need to know he tries to thwart the plans of god uh but god curses him and eventually he's going to be swept away do you think it's possible that even the the form of the telling of the story intentionally downplays Uh, the person, and that that's the reason why the the motif of a serpent is used.
1: Yes and no. So Mm -hmm. I do think this story is written in such a way as to demean the serpent, because Mm -hmm. A, he is not important in the ultimate scheme. His plans Mm -hmm. will not work. God's plans will go forward, right? If his plan is to get God to curse Adam and Eve, destroy them, and have to redo his creation, he fails, Mm -hmm. right? The curse comes about, but God also says, I'm going to make a way we're, we're not mm-hmm. restarting. Mm-hmm. I don't think the serpent motif is the uh, demeaning aspect of it. I think it's the consistent comparisons to the beasts of the field. In Genesis mm-hmm. 2, this is what God has created. The animals mm-hmm. that Adam has dominion over are the beasts of the field. We're introduced mm-hmm. to the serpent that he is more crafty than any beast of the field. Uh, and we mm-hmm. can get into the, this is maybe a good segue to get into the technical details in a moment for that. Um, but it's a comparison. If this yeah. is a spiritual being, if this is a heavenly creature, how how much of an affront is that? Yeah, you might be intelligent, but we're comparing you to animals, and it's going to result in you being below them, mm-hmm. right? This is this being cast down. If this is an angelic creature, this is them being thrown out of the heavens. You will now mm-hmm. go live on the earth and you are now below even the animals created merely in the physical realm. You are nothing. Yeah. Um, mm. And we can get to the, if you don't mind me doing one other thing, Tim, if, before, sure. if you wanted to get into the meek hole. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, listeners, if you have your video open, I'm going to share my screen here in a moment uh, because I want us to talk about the fact, this is why I don't think serpent is a, a, uh, an affront or, or a demeaning of This creature here so let me share my screen Mm -hmm. because the uh motif or image of a serpent is incredibly common in the ancient world so tim i have my presentation slides open so i can't see you so you'll have to say something if i'm missing something um but Listeners, uh, if you are listening to this uh, after the fact, I apologize. Maybe go check out our YouTube channel. Watch the replay of the live video. I'll try to describe what I have on the screen. Um, But serpents are fairly common in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And I just have a few pictorial descriptions for us. First, we have up here, this is Wadget. So she is an Egyptian (laughs) goddess of lower Egypt. And she's a snake goddess. And she's perceived as a cobra. But what's coming off her, what do they call it? The fin, the fan? That, that, that kind of hood on the cobra? Well, you mm-hmm. see stylized wings in both the painting and in the carving, right? That's really? kind of a unique motif, but hey, it's not alone. When, you, when we dug up King Tut's tomb, we got his throne. Well, look at the armrests of his throne. It's again a stylized snake with wings extending out. The serpent, by the mm-hmm. way, the cobra especially, was key to several of the dynasties. Um, and of course, cause this is live, I'm blanking on them and I forgot to write down my notes, <laughs> um, but, uh, they had the crest on their, their head. And occasionally these were stylized with wings. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, this comes from a, uh, a presentation that was given to the Victoria, uh, where was it? Uh, the, the Victorian society, uh, the Victoria Institute and philosophical society of great Britain in the late 1900s. Um, but he went through and found inscriptions throughout Egypt, and and there were several, there's three up here on the screen, that are all flying snakes. And it's not just Egypt. We can go to Babylon. You have Tiamat, the great dragon, the sea serpent. Uh, A great, uh, I don't want to say great creation story, a fascinating creation story, where (laughs) uh, the gods are the children of Tiamat, but they have to kill her and then use her body to create everything. It's bloody. It's kind of awesome. Go check it out. But uh, you'll notice Tiamat, the great dragon, is... Depicted in the mural, and then I have the sketching of it below with the aspects of many animals, but maybe most importantly, she's a dragon, but she has wings. Now, these are all mm. outside Israel, but guess what? We have them inside Israel. So, these are seals I first found with Othmar Kiel, who he's big into inscription data. Um, these are from Judah in the eighth century, and these are called seraph seals. So, it's Ooh. hard to point out. I'll try to get my laser pointer here, Tim. Let's see if it works. Do you see these? I do. Yeah. These are all snakes that have wings. And here here you see the, the kind of sun disc with snakes coming out. Remember, this represents the heavens in Egyptian iconography. So you have snakes in the heavens. So all, all this to point out that this idea of a, a serpent is not... I, I don't think we can say that that's something brought in here specifically to demean it. Um, I would argue that I think the ubiquitous nature of serpent imagery is a proto memory or an ancestral memory i think mm-hmm. of this story uh that yeah. something happened and by the way this goes be- far beyond and this is beyond the the scope of what we want to cover but you can go around the world even mesoamerican religions quetzalcoatl is a mm-hmm. flying serpent in aztec mythology so all that to say we've got flying serpents everywhere in the ancient world do with that what you will um this is kind of how i try to piece it together and I'm not convinced yep. I make full sense, but it's what I got.
0: No, well, Brian, I'm glad you brought that last point up because to me, I, I, think it's, I think it's profound. If there is this living memory of serpents and serpents as high creatures among the order of creation, serpents in sort of these semi-divine roles, to me, that does point back to a living memory that had to have its origin somewhere. and And I think that's important because, I really want to preserve this idea that uh, that the Bible is literally true and is, of course, depicted literarily, but that things like the flood or things like the garden would have had a living memory in the traditions of the world, and they do. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Uh, but a lot of times secular scholars will look at that and say, well, this is just kind of a common mythology that everyone had, as opposed to saying there was a common source that gave rise to all of these things. Uh, and that's where I think we can look to the Bible and say, it's not just that here was this common culture milieu; it's that there really were realities behind these. Um, at which point, uh, Brian, here's here's my question for you. As, as you think of it potentially in terms of a seraph, um, we talked last week about the possibility of the garden being a temple. Was this the seraph's day off? Um, if, if you know, like, what was like, mm-hmm. if the seraph is meant to be in the presence of God, or if Michael Heiser's right that it's somehow a cherub, or, or like, it, who would also be God, in the presence of God? Yeah. Right. So, if God is absent in this scenario, which seems to be true because he comes later in a particular manifestation, then why is the seraph? Is he off duty? Is this his day off? Why is he there? um and how do you how do you kind of uh try to understand that
1: so we're we're speaking beyond the text cuz the text just entered, <laughs> i mean you you even said it well right that it just jumps straight in here's a parenthetical right. statement and then we're off now the serpent um my guess or my my supposition tim is that this is the fall of the angels um mm-hmm. there's no time marker between genesis 2 and 3 we have some undisclosed amount of time Um, I think we are seeing this, the angels have fallen. And then this is one of the outworkings of that event whenever that Mm -hmm. takes place. Um, So that's why it's there. That's why Eve is not surprised uh, or at least doesn't betray that in the narrative that she's wondering why they're there. It's a creature that if it's a creature in the presence of God, God has been there. She's probably seen it before. Um, Beyond that, I don't have anything else, but I I do think that's probably why it's here. If this is a, we do, we've both made an assumption, and I think we agree on it, but let's just call it out. The fall of mm-hmm. the angelic realm happens before Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for Satan to be somehow operative, right, that had to have happened, and he has to, in some way, shape, or form. He either is here and is a seraph, he is sent a seraph, or he's inhabited a seraph, however you want to phrase that, fine. Mm-hmm. But he is somehow sent that because he has already fallen, and that event has taken place.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So you would say, and kind of answered to, to what you said earlier, that you would see sort of a, an angelic fall, um, and sin enter into the cosmos in that sense, or beyond the cosmos, if you will. You would see that as two distinct occasions. Uh, that's already happened in Genesis 3, then this one is a sort of second, you know, a, a human fall. I, I'm down with you, but I, I want to make sure I understand you would see those as, as not concurrent but separate. I mean, I suppose
1: you could argue that this is the concurrent fall of both. Right. Uh, maybe you could make that argument. I don't know if I would make that argument. I see them as two separate temporal events, but they are connected. Um, so mm-hmm. basically the point I was trying to make earlier is I don't think you can say the angels fell and independent of that at a later time Right. The right. the garden okay. happens. I think they're connected.
0: I see. I see. Okay. That's helpful. Um and then the last point I, I'll make, Brian, uh before we kind of kick it over to some listener questions, because we do have uh we do have some questions there. All right. The 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 Mikol uh, that mm-hmm. that you you talked about from among all or uh, perhaps above all or or there's many different interpretations of that and listeners just just so you know that this is the kind of thing that can drive people nuts because the the more work you do in the original languages the more you realize there really are many different possible ideas uh, that that could be uh, be communicated through these constructions. And so, uh, Brian here is essentially saying this particular construction could be rendered. And of course he's right. Could be rendered, uh, above all even, or distinct Mm -hmm. from all. Um, and, and yeah, I think for me, and this may be a little bit of my own Sunday school eyes, Brian, I, as I look at that, I think one from the technical sort of scholarly aspect, um, Is that the most likely rendering of that syntactic construction? Of course it's possible, uh, but I'm not convinced that a a sort of specialized meaning is appropriate here, because I think it, it does take on kind of just a simplistic narrative form. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I would have to look at some other instances to say, why would that particular syntactical form mean that in this situation? Now you explain that because you said, well, it just doesn't make sense. Otherwise it almost has to, or else you're, you're, you've got a talking snake for no reason. Um, but, but again, for me, I, I really do put a lot of stock into that. Just that, that idea that, uh, when it says among the beasts of the field, you know, that Yes, it could mean among or above or above all, but, uh, why does it, why does it, and again, I know what you you, you, you just said, it's emphasizing the distinction. It's emphasizing the difference. It's essentially throwing it in the enemy's face that you are now less than the less of cre- the least creatures, the least of creation. So I don't know. Let me uh, chew on that for a while. And maybe, maybe I'll, I'll be convinced by that, Brian. Um, but, uh, at the same time, I think I, I think the objection that I just raised, okay, well, why is you know why then, if this is a post fall uh, angelic sort of uh, rebellion, you know if this is Satan sort of now having been cast out of heaven, then why was he allowed in the Garden of Eden at all? Uh, if this is the touch point between heaven and earth then would God not have protected that and protected Adam and Eve? So maybe that's my last question for you before we hit the questions in the live chat. Sure. So let me talk about
1: the the Hebrew grammar a little bit. And so um, what we have here, listeners, we have in Hebrew, um, the serpent. Then you have an adjective, which is, we haven't brought it up because it's not pertinent to our discussion, but it's a pun, um, crafty Ooh, and yeah. naked from the end of chapter two are are both very similar. Um, and, and then you have this me coal' and it's a concatenation of two Hebrew words, men and call. So men meaning uh, among, above, from in Hallet, the the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament I was looking at today, I think it has seventeen primary definitions that they <laughs> identify. Um, so it's that, of course, added with call, which means all each and every. It has like four primary definitions. Uh, put them together, and there are 222 occurrences, or 228. I looked it up, and again, forgot to write it down. Sorry, listeners. Um, but it's a phrase that occurs somewhat frequently in the Hebrew Bible, um, mm-hmm. and it has a wide variety of meaning. Now, to back up Tim's point, uh, what we have here is a adjective and a comparative adjective. So, right, something is better than more than. Um, Hebrew does not do adjectives very well uh, simply because it does not have many adjectives. I think that's actually part of the beauty of the writing. We don't spend a lot of time with unnecessary descriptions. So when they show up, they tend to matter. Mm-hmm. The phrase X is whole Y uh, typically refers to two things belonging to the same category of class. So this is what Hallett mm-hmm. calls the partitive sense, Tim, which is why I think mm-hmm. you were uh, getting at. So yep. Saul was the tallest from all his kinsfolk. He's being compared to an Israelite because he is an Israelite. Um, Where are some of the other ones? Jacob loved Joseph from all his brothers, meaning more than all his brothers. Again, he is part of the the thing being compared to. However, that comparison doesn't necessarily mean you're always comparing apples to apples. There are Mm. instances where it simply means they both share a common characteristic, but aren't the same thing. So for example, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and you know you're in trouble when you're having to reference Song of Songs. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, everyone's like, uh-oh, where are we about to talk about? No, um, it, it's a comparison in which the speaker says the, fragr- the fragrance of your oil is more than all kinds of spices. Hmm. So here we have an interesting thing. Oils are not spices and spices are not oils. However, they both have the attribute of fragrance. So we can compare them. To do an English example, I can be smarter than my dog. Dogs have intelligence. I would certainly hope I'm more intelligent than my dog, Uh, right? (laughs) But we can do that comparison. That does not mean I am a dog. So I would argue, and it is the rare meaning. So let's be very clear about that. Tim has the more common rendering on his side. The rarer but not unattested rendering would be the serpent is craftier than any other beast of the field, meaning that beasts of the field have craftiness, which is not a negative trait actually in the biblical sense. It means someone that's intelligent, cagey wise, aware of their surroundings. Animals have that. We might call it instinct today, but it's saying that this creature has more of that than any other created physical being. I don't Mm -hmm. think that it means it necessarily is one. It's just a comparison. Um, Mm -hmm. That, so it is a rare argument, but it is an argument that I can find other cases where the, the grammar is saying exactly that. Um, mm-hmm. And so my, my theological problems, if this is just an animal, why is the animal getting punished? What does it mean to be for an animal that already is low down to the ground to be cast down to the earth? That mm-hmm. leads me to say I, I, I now have good grounds, I think, to argue for a rare rendering of this text, but a rendering that is possible within the bounds of the grammar. So that that's would be kind of my uh rejoinder.
0: Yeah. Well excellent. But I don't know. <laughs> There's this is, in, it's and, all crazy. And it's 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 very interesting. And again, to reiterate, grammar uh in syntax to me, rarely wins the day in these kinds of arguments, but it is important to at least show that there are other known instances where that kind of grammatical construction does refer yeah. to part of, a part of nature or comparison, and so I just wanted to uh, make sure our listeners know that. By the way, this is a lot of how scholars tend to argue and debate, and, and for instance, if you were to read scholarly articles, uh, this would be very common to try and kind of get into the, the deepest weeds and figure this out. But uh, let's go to Jacob McDonald, and I'll, I'll let you answer this first, Brian, then I'll chime in. Are there okay. theological consequences to whether or not it was a seraph or a physical animal? Um, and to me, there's, there's kind of a so what on the end of that. What does yeah. it matter, and, uh, and what are the consequences of each one of our positions? Yeah, that's a good
1: question. So the so what, if it's an animal, I'm wondering why an animal will be punished for an action, if it is not a moral creature, which Tim, you said moral impulses, but I don't think you mean mor- a moral creature in that it has a sin nature. You no. explicitly said no to that. Right. So I-, I would ask why, even if it was possessed, why would it be the one that bears the brunt of the punishment for that? Mm-hmm. Um, if it is a serif, I think that punishment now makes sense. It is a punishment directed at a moral creature that has committed sin. Um, mm-hmm. a- and I think then that gives us a better through line to those New Testament passages, that there's a, mm-hmm. spiritual, there's a spiritual creature that was at work here that God is punishing, that God is smacking down, saying, no, you are not me, uh, and you are inconsequential. So that, that's how I would answer it.
0: Yeah, and I think, Brian, uh, there's a part of me that really wants to agree with you, although here's what I would say with the whole animal dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, animals are subjected to the moral decisions of others, even though they're not responsible for them, and they're subjected to our moral, uh, moral sin. And we see that in Romans eight, where of course all of creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed, but also you know for the dread and fear of animals to come upon, uh, to come upon the or the dread and fear of man rather to come upon the animals. Again, I actually think that fits really well with. Uh, What we see in Genesis 1, where humans are given dominion over the animals to steward them, Uh, what we see in terms of the harmony, naming the animals, uh, whether or not that's an explicit act of dominion, I think it probably is in the naming of animals. But then even, right, in Genesis 6, save these animals. God cared for the animals, uh, even as they were subjected to a lot of things that they weren't morally responsible for. And so I don't think even... Uh, you know, if, if I were to try and, and pull together, okay, if, if you're Satan, why would you have used an animal? Perhaps it was uh, because he wanted to subvert God's purposes, which was for there to be perfect harmony between uh, animals and, and humans, uh, and at which point he couldn't, say, possess a human at that point, uh, but maybe he could an animal. Uh, and so is that a potential way that he was trying to subvert God's good purposes from the very beginning? I think it's at least possible, and I think that th- fits the theme of Genesis. But here's here's what I would say. I actually, uh, you know, as I think about Genesis 3, just like I think it's it's not less than a serpent, but it's more, I think there's not less going on here, but I do think there is much more. And I kind of mm. uh, tip my hand a little bit. I, I think that uh, the, the Israelite people, as they understood this, would have seen the, the malevolent powers of darkness at work. Um, and I, I think there are so many New Testament allusions to this. Even the idea, we didn't bring this up, Brian, maybe we can in the Hasatan episode. I hope so. That'll be a fun one. But even the idea of Paul saying that the eight, that, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, well, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? You know, the, the, the idea of masquerading, the idea of, of presenting himself to be something that he's not. So when I think about the takeaway, whether he's a, a seraph, well, he's presenting himself as something that he's not. He's claiming the right to speak for God, but what does he do? He sows lies. Or with the serpent, the same essential thing. He's presenting himself as a natural creature. You know, I'm someone who's under your authority, Eve, so you can listen to me. I'm not here to try and challenge anything. It, either way, he's presenting himself in a way that he knows is going to uh, is going to uh, discard. His, uh, and by that I mean, take down the guard, take down the defenses of the person who's listening to him. And so the in one sense, the question would be, well, which would have been more advantageous to present himself as a holy creature who stands before God? I could see that. Or to present himself as an innocent creature who just kind of, you know, uh, comes in and, and unassuming. But either way, I do think that Satan was crafty in the sense of knowing that he couldn't just present an outright lie to Eve, that he had to somehow mask it and masquerade. So to me, that's the that's the so what, is mm-hmm. we do want to understand the playbook of our enemy. and uh, And of course, he has many different place. But to understand the different ways that he can come at us, the different ways even that he can present himself, I think there's a fruitfulness there, even if we don't have maybe a satisfying answer in the end, uh, to know that Satan has a lot of different ways that he can he can sow his lies. So that would be my answer to that particular question. Yeah. Um, very good question, Jacob. Thank you. So, Brian, I don't see any more questions in the chat. Maybe we'll give the listeners another minute or two to say something. But uh, in the absence of more questions, we're we're at about an hour on the live stream, so we probably need to bring it to our final thoughts. But Brian, uh, what are some? Here's here's my question for you. What questions do you have unanswered in your mind about your own position? What bothers you about your own position?
1: So. One of the big questions, and you brought up the passage, which I intentionally avoided because I I didn't want to deal with the implication. <laughs> I see all the the groundwork that this is, although not being called out in the passage because we're de-emphasizing it. This is a seraph that is a creature of light. It's a fiery creature. Um, yeah. Satan is called as an angel who masquerades as a as, masqueraded as an angel of light, and so I see all of the hallmarks of Satan, either pretending to be a seraph here or having been a seraph. And mm-hmm. this, I, I mentioned, this might be subsequent to the fall of the angels. This could be the fall event itself for everything mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. Um, But the Bible never makes those connections. And so I, I have a lot of, my my struggle, Tim, is I see a lot of these things and I go, I can draw the lines together, but the Bible hasn't drawn these lines together for me. Now, yeah that doesn't mean the lines are wrong but i do i do want to be careful of not overstating my case or overstating what's available here um mm-hmm. i do find it i do find it interesting if this is an animal I, I do i my hang up is i do have some trouble the serpent's cursed before creation is cursed does that mean mm-hmm. it's a doubly cursed animal and why just that one animal mm-hmm. um I I completely understand your point, and I would agree. Creation is cursed because it's caretaker's sin. Um, But the serpent is uniquely called out, and so I I struggle there. So I'm not 100% sold on my view, and that's part of why I've really enjoyed the questions. Uh, I thought they've been very good (laughs) got me thinking, and I'm going to keep thinking (laughs) uh, for a couple hours after this and not being able to sleep uh, because I have some stuff to wrestle with. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. Tim, what questions do you still have on your position?
0: Uh, I have a lot. I really do. And uh, uh, one of the questions that I have is, why, if it is an animal, why would the animal be described in its totality as crafty? Um, in other words, mm-hmm. that description that only seems to make sense if it's describing one particular animal rather than a species. Yeah, like it's why would an serpent, entire not just right, serpents ex- exactly, um, and. Uh, and and some of the things you mentioned uh, really do resonate. Okay, what about what about the moral relationship between humans and animals? What about the moral culpability or blameworthiness of animals in general? And uh, and and again, I come back to, I, I think, I think when it comes to the unseen world, there is a reason why so much of it is unseen and untold. Uh, and Hmm. I tend to think that the reason for that is we really couldn't understand it, even if we wanted to, uh, just because the spiritual realm in, in many ways is fundamentally different. Um, and, and so I, again, my position is it's more than a snake, not less than a snake. Uh, and yet here's, here's where I come back to, and this will be my final, final answer. Uh, it really does come back to that thought of Sunday school eyes. It's hard for me to shed something that I learned even when I was a little kid. Mm. And it, it might take all the weight of the ancient Near Eastern evidence or the Hebrew evidence. It, it, it really is hard when the first thing that you learned, and when you learned it from people who smiled at you and loved you and taught you, Jesus loves me, the song, you know, and fed you cookies. Like, I want to believe the people who fed me cookies, Brian. I want to believe. Them. And, uh, and so, they're, really, that's the part that even on a deeper level is all of these scholarly opinions are great, uh, and, and they are, but sometimes it's just hard to say, okay, is something that I learned in the beginning, uh, is, is it perhaps, uh, maybe not a mistake, but is it the full story? And so mm. that's something that I'm still trying to, to deal with and think about. But that's, that's, of course, why we're doing what we do, right, Brian, so that we yeah. can think about these things in a safe environment, think about some crazy things that maybe others might not talk about, but, but do so in a way uh, that we're trying to be faithful to the text as, also, as well as be intellectually honest. So, uh, Brian, we don't have any more questions, so uh, do you have any final thoughts before I wrap it up for us?
1: No, this has been a great time, Tim. I've really appreciated going through this discussion with you, and I'm excited to keep it going next week. So, what are what are we covering next week, Tim?
0: Okay, so uh, next week, uh, I th- I think we just keep going with Hasatan right. and Job. Uh, I I love that idea. Is Hasatan or is Satan in Job the being that we commonly refer to as Satan? Uh, who is it? What's going on there in Job? Uh, And so it's a little bit of the same, but a little bit different. And uh, I look forward to talking to the resident expert in Job on that as well. So I'm going to have to come in with uh, some, some guns loaded for that discussion, but I look forward to that already, Brian. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to go through it. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, it definitely will be. Well, hey, listeners, again, thank you so much for joining us on In With The Old. Uh, As always, we encourage you, share this content uh, if it's beneficial to you, and we hope it is. Uh, Take some time to share it with others. And if you have your questions, In With The Old Podcast at Outlook.com. You can follow us on Facebook as well. We'd love to answer your questions. Uh, And hopefully we'll see you next week. Until then, stay cool and stay old.